Welcome to week four of Substance. I hope you're quivering with excitement. Um, Why don't you open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter two? If you're opening a pew Bible, it is somewhat serendipitously on page 1776. So we'll be talking about freedom this morning. And um, I want you to notice as I read the passage that the passage tells us two things. It tells us our foundational slavery, and it tells us about how a human being can experience liberation from that slavery. That's what it says. As for you, that's you if you're a Christian, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show his incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So this series we've been doing called Substance, we've been focusing on how do we become people of spiritual substance? How do we become oaks of righteousness in a world of vapor? And so over the last several weeks, we started with um, we started with See if we can fix the slide thing Would you guys um, So we started with Thank you um, This quote from Matthew 6 Where Jesus says Our eyes Are the, essentially the light The lamp of our body That is the light And if our eyes can see Our whole body is full of light If our eyes can't see Our whole body is full of darkness. And so whether or not we can, we have spiritual sight, we can see what's really there spiritually is actually the most critical thing about us and defines whether or not we'll be people that are full of light, spiritually speaking, or full of darkness, spiritually speaking. That is this concept of discernment. And the most fundamental idea in relationship to discernment, Jesus says, is that you can't have two masters. You can't belong to God and belong to the world. You can't worship God and mammon. It doesn't work because the thing is, is that humans become like Whatever they give their allegiance to Whatever whatever we get our convictions from Whatever we put our allegiance in We become like it And these two masters are fundamentally unlike each other And so you can't become increasingly like both of them at the same time Right? And then we talked about the fact that In order to pursue that To pursue having just one God Not the God of this world And to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness Right? Which is what he says later in Matthew 6, that there's, there's these four marks of substance that we're to pursue. Self-sacrificial love, the mind of Christ, virtuous freedom, and keeping in step with the Spirit. Next two weeks, we're going to talk about virtuous freedom. This one will be a lot more involved than next week, though, in terms of how many things we're talking about. So we talked about self-sacrificial love as being the end of what we're pursuing, right? God is seeking to make us loving, Right? Jesus said the, the fulfillment of all of the law is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. Like that is, that is what he's making us into. He's making us into people who can love. Right? But we also talked about how love isn't just how whatever you feel like might be loving. Love is actually the commitment of your will and being to the true good of all others. Right? 
in proper proportion, in proper relationship, in the midst of all the virtues in proper relationship to each other. That is, love isn't the simplest thing in the world. It's actually the most complicated thing in the world. And so in order for us to know what the target of love is, we have to have something the Bible calls the mind of Christ. That is, Jesus thinks and feels and acts in certain ways. Like he he, he sees the world in a certain way he, In scripture and in his life, death, and resurrection And through the work of his spirit He forges in us a way of seeing the world Right? In Romans 12 it says If you're going to be a living sacrifice Like Jesus, right? You have to be unconformed to the pattern of this world And be transformed by the renewing of your mind And if that happens, the result will be That you'll understand God's will Not that you'll know everything in God's mind That's not going to happen anytime soon But if you have the mind of Christ, you will know the will of God. That is, you'll know what God wants to do in his kingdom and in his righteousness. Does that make sense? That is, you'll know what the target is. And so, you'll be constantly failing, I'll be constantly failing, but we'll be failing in the right direction. Right? And then we talked about how out of having the mind of Christ, we have to actually do the things that the will of God dictates, right? If we feel and don't do, we become the kind of people that think you can feel something and not do it, and that's real. And ultimately, not only will we not do it, the more we feel stuff without doing it, the more we will be the kind of people that can't even really feel. Because the feeling was all a sham all along, right? And so what needs to happen is the feeling needs to be driven into action through a certain strength of character that we call virtue. And that virtue actually is what creates real freedom. That it says in Galatians 5 that it was for freedom that Christ set us free. And then a couple verses later it says, but don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Meaning, liberty isn't for license. That's not the kind of freedom Jesus is creating. Jesus is creating a different kind of freedom for a different kind of positive thing. That thing we're going to talk about next week. But he also set us free. That is, he liberated us from a certain kind of slavery. That's what we're going to talk about this week. And in order for us to live in free virtue, we have to know what that slavery is, how we keep falling back into it, how it keeps lying to us again and convincing us to give it space in our life, and so therefore how to be truly just free of it. That is, you have to appropriate, you have to Receive. You have to live in the liberation of Christ. Otherwise, you can't live in the positive freedom if you don't receive the freedom that takes you out of the slavery. Does that make sense? Now, the question we have to face then is, what is freedom? What is virtue? What is our foundational slavery? How does all this work? And what does Jesus have to do with it? And is this a sermon on politics? Right? Now, Um, There are three things that are intimately related with each other Freedom, virtue, and faith Um, One author, Os Guinness, has called this the golden triangle Because they all require each other Freedom requires virtue Virtue requires faith Faith requires freedom And you can find this in most of the writers of the founding fathers of the United States That's not the main interest for us today, though So freedom is something that everybody knows they want It's one of the most fundamental longings of the human heart If you look at the writings of every culture throughout all of time You will find writings and reflections and activities and revolutions And all these things where people are talking about Achieving, gaining, living in, or protecting freedom Because human beings want it The the problem is, is that if you ask people Hey, is freedom a good thing? People will say, yes And then if you ask Ten people who said yes to define freedom, how many different definitions are you going to get? Somewhere between five and ten, probably, right? Because we know what it is, but we're not super clear, right? Some people will say, um, freedom is the ability to be able to run through the streets naked with green jello rubbed on my skin. Like, it's, it's, the, it's, it's the freedom to just do whatever I want. You know, if, if, what I, if I want to do something and I can go do it, that's freedom, right? That's the We refer to that as a definition of freedom called license. I want to do this thing. You can't do that thing. No, I have a permit for it. I I have a license. I can do it, right? It's the idea that you, like, you have a free license for everything. That's not what the Bible means by freedom. There's some truth to that. Being being willing to determine yourself what you're going to do instead of having an illegitimate authority determining for you, that is a true thing. But there's a way of understanding that's really wrong. Now, there's another way of understanding freedom. That is, freedom is to be oppressed by need. 
right? This would be the progressive view of freedom, or the freedom found in the, the United Nations human rights part of their big thing, right? Where it basically says, when people are in extreme poverty, they don't have the freedom to develop their personality. The development of personality is how we fully embody our freedom. And so if you're, you know, so poor or so oppressed, you never really develop as a person, and so your humanity, your capacity for freedom is destroyed. And so freedom means the ability to pursue the, per- the development of your personality. Now, you can see how that, there's something really right about that, and you can see how that idea could be terribly abused, right? I have the freedom to do whatever I want to, like, develop whatever develop my personality means to me. Ooh! Right? But at the same time, you can see how somebody who always has to think about what they're going to eat doesn't form morally and virtuously and poetically and in terms of beauty and like they could, right? Something true about that, something wrong with that, right? And that's true for almost every doctrine of freedom because the question is, what is the most foundational doctrine of freedom, right? The founding fathers of the United States thought much more biblically about this, partly because they actually read the Bible and partly because um, they read people who had reflected deeply on the Bible, even the Enlightenment thinkers, so John Locke, Montesquieu, Right? People like that. And you see, in the ancient world, it was really well understood. Human limitation was really well understood. So, like, most of us in this present technological world, we're all still a little mad that we can't fly right now. Like, we should have little jetpacks. Like, the idea that I'm limited and enslaved by the fact that I can't fly, it's crazy. We're supposed to have flying cars by now and whatever, right? In the ancient world, everybody, they thought mainly in the form of limitations, Almost everything you wanted to do, you couldn't do. So freedom couldn't be license, and everybody was radically poor. And so if you couldn't develop your personality because you were poor, then nobody could develop their personality but the king, right? What it had to mean was, is that as a human being, you had a certain duty. There was a certain good that you were in place to do. Okay, so for me, I'm here to love you and to love my family. That's what I'm going to do on Sunday today, right? I'm here to love you right now. That's what, so I'm here to love in two main contexts, and that's what I have to do today. That is the good that is in front of me to do. And the question is, am I free to do it? Is there something outside keeping me from doing it, oppression, or is there something internally making it so that I'm too weak to do it? If either of those are the case, then I'm in the state of slavery, If neither of those are the case, and I can do the good that's in front of me to do, I'm free. Does that make sense? Now, what that means is, now that's not just true individually for me, it's true socially. So the Founding Fathers of America wrote about civil liberty. That is the liberty that exists between us. Whether or not you recognize how free I'm supposed to be, and I recognize how free you're supposed to be. Now, what they recognized was, is that the concept of liberty— that I'm going to trust you to live and make your own choices, you're going to trust me to live and make my own choices, assumes trust, right? I have to trust you that whatever you're going to do, you're not going to hurt me and the people I love, and whatever I do, I'm not going to hurt you and the people you love. And what that means, actually, is is that we believe on an agreed-upon set of things that you can do, and it also assumes that I can rely on you to do them. I don't have to force you to do it. You'll force yourself to do it. That is— Not just my personal freedom relies on virtue, but our shared liberty with each other. You can't have social liberty without virtue. Does that make sense? Edmund Burke said it this way. He said, men, and by that he means all human beings, people are qualified for liberty in exact proportion to their disposition to put moral chains upon their own appetites. Society cannot exist unless a controlling power upon the will and appetite be placed somewhere. And the less there is within, the more there must be without. It is ordained in the eternal constitution of things that men of intemperate minds cannot be free. Their passions forge their fetters. Now you see, see what he's saying there? He's saying, if I can control myself, then you don't have to control me. Does that make sense? So you may be like, are you talking about government? No, I'm talking about parenting first, right? Like, what do, what do you say to your kids a thousand times before they're of age to leave your house? You say, they say, they say, I don't like what you're doing, Dad. Like, why do you blah, blah, blah? And you say to your kid, look, do you think I like, do you think I like punishing you? You think I like disciplining you? You think I like controlling you or coercing you or telling you what to do? I don't like telling you what to do. I wish you'd grow up and, and like do what you're supposed to do and discipline yourself and put a control on your own passions from the inside. That's your job. 
right? I'm the scaffolding for that. As soon as you do what you're supposed to do, I don't have to do what you're supposed to do, which is control you. So get with it, and then I won't have to parent, and we can be buddies or whatever the heck you think that means. <laughs> right? Because controls on human passions and appetites and imaginations and desires and whatever have to be placed somewhere. And if they don't exist within, they have to be placed on you from without. Otherwise, everybody's going nuts and hurting everybody and killing anybody, and we all do that together. That's called anarchy, and when that happens, everybody hates it, and so they look for somebody powerful to stop it all, and you get tyranny. That's how tyranny happens, right? And that happens in us individually. It happens in small groups like families, and it happens in societies. Intemperate men cannot be free. That is intemperate, unable to control themselves, unvirtuous. Unvirtuous people cannot be free. They either need parents or a jail cell or something to control them. An ankle bracelet. Um, and the reason for that is because it's their own passions that forge the chains that bind them. Either in their own compulsions where they always do the wrong thing, or that they're so out of control and a problem for everybody around them, everybody gets together and puts a chain on them. So whether the chain is metaphorical or the chain is literal, it's their intemperate passions. It's their lack of virtue. And in that sense, the foundational slavery of all of humanity is our intemperateness, our what the, and the, here's the Bible calls it. Well, here's what the Bible says makes that. That is habitual vice. The flesh. The sinful nature. The sinful condition. Right? Now, so freedom then requires virtue. You can't have personal freedom. You can't have moral freedom. You can't have spiritual freedom. You can't have civil freedom. You can't have social freedom. You can't, you can't have any kind of liberty or emancipation, humanly speaking, over the long term without virtue. That has a lot of political implications. It's not a political point. It's a moral, philosophical, psychological, and religious point. But it has a lot of political implications, which is why you can't keep religion out of politics. By definition. There's no such thing as that. Right? One of the questions we should all be asking ourselves whenever somebody in politics or in authority in any way says, I can offer you a kind of freedom. I can offer you freedom from X. The question every Christian should ask themselves is, does this person understand the foundational freedom of human beings? He may understand this kind of enslavement and liberation, but does he understand the most foundational one and its remedy? And if he doesn't, then it's very likely whatever he's trying to remedy is going to make this worse, which is going to produce more vice, which will produce more distrust, which will produce more social chaos, which will require more external constraints, which will grow until there is tyranny. Because we don't have any good people to put in charge, remember. Power not only corrupts, it draws the most corrupt to begin with. Now, the, the problem is, is that we're really right now in search of just somebody to rule us. <laughs> and it has to be somebody that, that has virtue, right? We have to be this person. And the problem is, is that freedom doesn't create virtue, right? Virtue is essentially the strength to love the good and do it. So before we talked about how love was the queen of the virtues, right? In a sense, courage or fortitude is the king of the virtues. Now, here's the thing. The Romans didn't know that love was the queen of the virtues. Okay? They probably thought prudence was, and they were wrong about that. Prudence is the sage of the virtues. But the Romans couldn't know that because you need Jesus to know that. You need—we're too wicked to know that. We needed the special revelation of God contradicting our wickedness to tell us that the thing that we're doing, the informing heart of it, is love. But you don't have to go to private school to know that whatever the good is, whatever it is we're trying to do, you got to be strong enough to do it. If you say, I want to do something, and you're just not strong enough to do it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't make a 
bit of difference. If you aren't strong enough to deliver on whatever has to be done, it doesn't make a bit of difference if you know what has to be done. And so every culture in the history of the entire world before the internet, basically, or at least before Bill Clinton, knew that virtue was fundamental to human life together no matter what else you believed about the good. So if you go to ancient China, ancient China will define the good according to their overarching religious faith, which tends to have to to do with wisdom carried through society, specifically in relationship to ancestors, within certain parameters, right? Essentially, wisdom. But wisdom only matters if it is put into virtue. You have to be strong enough to do what's wise. Same thing is true in Japan. Same thing is true in India, right? In India, the wisdom is a little more metaphysical, a little bit more mystic in the Vedas, but there's still this basic idea that these means like meditation and so on of Eastern mysticism were designed to produce a kind of discipline. Buddhism is the same way. Right? Buddhism rejected this certain kind of mysticism of Hinduism, but it said, we need to do these social things so that we don't all fight with each other. Well, what are you going to do? Well, I'm going to become a monk. I'm going to reach enlightenment through that. I'm going to do certain disciplines so that I'm strong enough to turn away from certain things that create suffering so that we can all suffer less, right? The idea is, is that we're arguing about who the queen of the virtues is, not the king. And we're arguing about how you produce virtue. But we're not arguing about the need of strength. Without strength, you don't have anything. That's why the word virtue is built off the word for strength. So the, and so the question is not, do you know what's loving? Knowing what's loving is really important because that's what we're doing. But the next question then is, do you have the will and strength to do it? Because all of the flesh inside of you, all of the human imaginations and desires and passions and so on, are going to say, no, that's not in my interest. That's not in your interest. Let's not do that. That's not going to make us happy. That's not going to take us where we want to go. That's not going to get us ahead. That's not going to get us the approval or the control or the power or the comfort that we're looking for. It's not going to do that. Stop, stop, stop. And yet virtue has to be like, shut up. We don't care what you think, flesh. Like, you're on death row. We just have you over here until Jesus comes back and wipes you out forever. You have no say. Right? And the flesh, listen, the flesh is still going to act like a two-year-old and throw this tantrum inside of you and yell and whine and throw things and wipe their poop, it's poop on stuff, and just get angry. And virtue has to be like, we're not doing it. Do whatever you want. Yell. Who cares? Now, The problem, though, is is that virtue can't create itself. Freedom requires virtue. Virtue can combat vice, but virtue doesn't create itself, right? So how do we get the kind of liberation that virtue creates? Where does it come from? It's like the hardest thing in the world, right? And what it requires is, is that we know what our foundational slavery is. Because in 1 Peter 2, you get this example where Peter is talking about other people who offer you sla- offer you liberation, right? Which I was just talking about politically, but that's true for, for religious teachers too. It's true for philosophical teachers and academic teachers and all kinds of people selling all kinds of stuff that basically say, I can make you free of something. I can get you more license or more whatever. And what, what Peter's saying is like the very people who can tell you that you're going to be free apart from Christ, if you look at their character, they're slaves of depravity. <laughs> And what they don't understand is is that they're telling you they can make you free of some rule or something, but what they don't understand is that the foundational depravity of all human beings, the, the slavery we start in, is this thing called depravity or the domination of ourselves by our flesh or our sinful condition. And you see, if whatever, whatever liberation you're looking for, whatever salvation you're looking for, whatever emancipation you're looking for is, if it doesn't begin with the remedy of your foundational slavery, you will never be free. There is no kind of freedom that you can receive that if it doesn't deal with this foundational slavery, that it can ever make you free in this life or the next. Do you understand? And so... Remember in the Burke quote, he said, people have to have a 
disposition to put moral chains upon their appetites. We have to actually want to do it. And that's actually the qualification for liberty. And so there's a third piece, which is essentially faith. Faith is the thing that God uses to create virtue. And then through virtue, freedom can be received and sustained and lived in and utilized for the maximum good. That part we'll talk about next week, right? That is, it's through faith that God does things, that is, focuses us on the good and forges it into our character so that our convictions are so strong about it that when it comes time to do something, we have the strength to do it, which is, of course, over time. You don't become as strong as you could ever be in virtue like today. If you're like, man, I haven't been doing this. I'm going to start doing this. Look, look, you're going to, you just got to start failing in the right direction, okay? That's all Christians are ever doing is failing in the right direction. Right? It's like I said before with the bow last week. You can shoot the bow at the target. You're almost never going to hit the bullseye if you're at any kind of meaningful distance. Right? Like if it's, if it's a hard enough situation and you're shooting at the bullseye, you're never going to hit the bullseye. Right? Archery is just too weird for that. But you'll get closer. And as you get better at shooting, if you're actually aiming at the right thing and you're getting better at shooting, the, the right thing is the mind of Christ, the getting better at shooting is virtue, you start hitting closer and closer and closer. You may never hit it. You may split your arrow. I don't know. But the point is, is that you're moving in the right direction. And that's what fa- faith is. Faith and repentance is always just, oops, not that. Yes, this. It's no long— and all that means is, oops, that's the wrong direction. We need to get moving back in the right direction. Right? The only person who's perfect is Jesus. We're just trying to fail in the right direction. Now, people have talked about, okay, wait, if that's true, then does the faith have to be religious or should it just be your belief in good? Well, we know from, from pagan virtue and stuff like that that if you commit yourself to the good, even if it's irreligious, it will forge a certain kind of character in you if you have really strong convictions about it. But— um, but historically, the founding fathers of America, it's certainly not the Bible, they believed that God was absolutely central to that. In fact, John Adams said this. He said, human reason and human conscience are not a match for human passions, human imaginations, or human's enthusiasm without the belief in a God of judgment and reward, a moral God of judgment and reward. See, even Benjamin Franklin, who was not hardly religious at all, right? He said that he was absolutely religious in this sense. He believed that there was a moral God who believed in right and wrong that were absolutes and that he judged those who didn't follow it and he rewarded those who did. He said, now exactly how all that works out with all this Christianity stuff or Judaism, whatever, he's like, I'm not particularly interested in that. And so he spent his whole life trying to be a good person, which he said he personally terribly failed but did a better job than anybody else, which is a really interesting thing to talk about, but we won't right now. The point is, is that the, part, the parts of us that are meant to respond to God, that are created with the capacity for the divine image, that is our capacity for reason, our capacity for moral and spiritual conscience, our capacity to interact with God as spirit, those sorts of things are, are so twisted in our brokenness as sinners that they're just, just without God, they're not really a match for all the screaming and temper tantrums of our flesh. And so without believing in God, it's very unlikely that they're going to be strong enough. But the problem is, is that just believing in a God who punishes and rewards on the basis of morality actually isn't that helpful. What we require is actually faith in a God who, who is morally serious and who we have hope that we could please. Non-moralistically. Do you notice that? Those three, faith, hope, and love from the Bible— And that hope comes from the fact that our salvation isn't moralistic, but gracious. Even if the virtue that gracious God is forming in us is moral. Do you see how that works? So does God want to make you a more moral person? Absolutely! Yes, a more virtuous person. More lo- and that, what that means is a more loving person, holistically speaking, right? But are you going to get to brag about that? The answer is no, right? Ephesians 2 says, that's why you were saved by grace. So that nobody could brag. Why? Because you're never going to do as well as Jesus. You're always going to be a big moral failure. Well, wait, Nick, why should I be pursuing something that I'm going to fail at? Well, the only reason you would have a problem with pursuing something you're going to fail at is if you think the only reason worth pursuing something is if you win. How stupid is that? 
It's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You pursue things because they're worth pursuing intrinsically. Not whether or not you win. Almost everything in your life that's worth doing, you are going to fail after a long battle. Right? J.R.R. Tolkien called it fighting the long defeat. Listen, I'm going to fight death today. Screw death. I'm going to fight death today, but I'm going to (laughs) die. I'm going to fight sickness today. Forget sickness. I don't like sickness. Sickness doesn't love God, and I do. Right? But I'm going to get sick, and ultimately I'm going to die. Right? I don't like sin. Forget sin. Sin's stupid. I'm going to fight it. I'm probably going to sin later today. I might be sinning right now. I said screw just a second ago. (laughs) Right? But dang it, I'm going to fail forward. I'm going to fight the long defeat. I'm, I'm never going to be totally free of sin or, or the flesh or these passions or these failures or any of that stuff. I'm never going to be a success. I'm always going to be a failure. But I don't—I'm not living to be a success. I'm not doing anything I'm doing in my life to win. I'm doing everything in my life because it's worth doing. Because God has given it to me to do. Because he's made me to love the good. Because I'm pursuing virtue, not success. And in pursuing virtue, not success, I will have some limited successes. Some small victories that we can celebrate together. And I need grace for that. Now, that's one of the reasons why the question of virtue has everything to do with allegiance. And faith has everything to do with allegiance. Who has our allegiance? Right? Who, who do we believe in? Who do we follow? Who are we imitating? Who has the right to tell us what to do? Who's in authority over us? Right? And in what sense does that change us? Because here's the thing. Whatever we give ourselves to, we as humans, we imitate, we become like. We would love to think that we like analytically construct ourselves with thoughts, but what really happens is we see something that we find beautiful, and then we imitate it. Right? Now, if we're lost in the compulsion of our sin, the stuff that we're going to find, we'll call it beauty, but it'll really be attraction. The stuff that we're attracted to, the stuff we're infatuated with, Right? Those infatuations of our compulsion will drive us to certain things that we will then imitate. And it will hollow us out, and it'll break us down, and it'll make us sick. And it'll ultimately, well, we'll be dead in our transgressions of sin, and by nature the object of wrath, to say the way Ephesians 2 says it. You see? Or we can see something that is intrinsically beautiful, something that is, well, what— what is the good and the one who is the ultimate good and the one who in came in the flesh and became the full embodiment of the good and accomplished the truest and most beautiful good for us and for all, right? Who had no obligation to do so. It is by grace, God's infinite kindness. It's so he could show his incomparable mercy, right? The, the question of faith is a question of devotion and a question of service. Now, the reason for that is because our foundational slavery has in it a devotion, a service, and an allegiance. Okay, so this, this passage I understood very shallowly for most of my Christian life. What I mainly thought Ephesians 2 was about was about salvation by grace, which it is, and it's about the fact that before I came to Jesus or when I'm not following Jesus, I'm going to fall into what it calls gratifications or cravings of my flesh, that like my sinful nature or my sinful condition, my broken desires and and, and so on, my passions, are going to drive me towards things I'm infatuated with rather than things that are truly beautiful. And when that happens, I'm going to live according to those cravings, and that's that's not good, right? But it's, it's much, much worse than that. Okay? And here's why. Because what I didn't think enough about was this. And following its desires and thoughts. Now that's incredibly important, and we don't talk about this nearly enough. Here's what happens. Right? I'm afraid of death and hell, and I have a moral conscience that I cannot know. So when I do something that's wrong, there's a space in me that knows it. Okay? Now, therefore, in order for me to act like a compulsive idiot, which is what I'm going to do according to my sinful nature, to follow my flesh, 
I, I, I can't, my flesh has to supply two things for me. One is that it supplies the compulsion, right? Go do this thing, right? But see, my conscience will be like, we can't do that, then I won't be a good person, right? Because then, you know, that has all these complications, and we can't have all these complications, right? So what my flesh has to do is it has to supply a second thing. That is thoughts and desires. That is a mental justification for doing this thing I want to do. Does that make sense? So it sends like a, hey, Nick, let's go do X. But then it says, and if you do X, it's fine. And here's why, right? So you can betray—so, Nick, let's betray this friendship, because this person isn't doing much for us. They're mostly boring, and we're giving a lot more than we're getting in this friendship— and let's just, we need to get rid of it, we'll hang out with this person more. I'd be like, that sounds really good, because that person just is needy, right? So my flesh says that to me, right? And I'm agreeing with my flesh, right? But then I'm like, yeah, but like, they're a, I'm just kind of, you know, they're like a, I kind of feel bad, they're like a person, right? So the flesh goes, well, you know, everybody has responsibilities in relationships, and they really should be pulling their weight, and don't you know the blah, blah, blah. And there's this whole explanation for why it's fantastic for me to dump that person, and that whoosh goes up here, and I go, yeah, you know what, you're right, that's so right, that's so, right. so you know, so imagine, right, I've got my, there's the tempting voice, but there's also like the beer buddy's voice, right? And both of those are integrally involved in how the flesh works. And so what Paul is saying, he's saying, listen, when you're not walking according to the virtue of Christ, when you're not believing and trusting in him, what happens is not just that you're living in the compulsion of your flesh. The, the, what's happening is there are these thoughts that go along with it that you're believing, and it's like confusing your whole mind. And it makes you think totally wrong about everything. And because of that, every time you buy one of those thoughts, you're giving your allegiance to the flesh. And the more the flesh has your allegiance, the more it can get you to think whatever it wants. And the more you will compulsively think, not just act. And that's why Ephesians 2 can say you're dead in your transgressions and sins. Because the whole point of saying you were dead isn't to say you're physically dead. Because look at you, you're not physically dead. It's a metaphor. But what's a metaphor of? It's a metaphor of inability. The whole point of saying you're dead, right? There's all kinds of ways to describe people who are caught up in the flesh. Why say dead? And the answer is not just that you're dead me in terms of the wrath of God, but you're dead in terms of inability. You're never going to get free of this yourself. And the reason you're not going to get free of it is because the, what's, ha- so what's been happening is not you've been doing these compulsive bad things, but you really know what you're doing up here, and you're really a good moral person, and you really know that it's not right and all that kind of stuff, but you're doing these bad things. And at any minute, you could just be like, you know what, I'm going to go with my conscience on this one. No, you've been living in compulsion, and you've been feeding your conscience all this nonsense for probably multiple decades. And it's so blackened in its confusion is that there's no pinpricks of light left to be like, wait a second, this is not okay. Like, people don't just, like, live in the flesh and then just go, wait a second. This thought in all that is wrong. But wait, if, if that's wrong— then that thought is probably wrong, too. And if those are wrong, then these three are wrong. And if those are wrong, then these are wrong. And these are wrong. And it's just like totally right. And you're like, wait a second. I've been doing some bad stuff. What Ephesians 2 is saying is saying, without the power of God, in the power of his— because, you see, if you're all all self-blind like that, there's no argument. There is just the inbreaking of the blinding light of the beauty of the person of Christ himself that just blows the whole thing up and is referred to as God made us alive with Christ. That's why salvation has to be a miracle. And why we're saved through faith but by grace. And it's why you can't ever brag. Right? Now, a lot of times when people come to Jesus, they think that now that they're a Christian, the most fundamental distinction in all of creation is non-Christians and Christians. And the reason we think that is because we're still idolaters and we still think that the most important thing in all of creation is what's going to happen to us. Right? Um, and w- hopefully we'll grow out of that spiritually as we fail in the right direction. But the, the most fundamental distinction in all of creation is the distinction between creator and created. Right? There's two categories. One category has one being in it, and the other category has everything else. Okay? And that is the most fundamental distinction among everything, because the, the one person that is above the creator-creation line is uncreated, 
uncontingent, completely free, self-defining, full of self-meaning, right? And everything below it is dependent, contingent, and subordinate. And by contingent, I mainly mean you exist because of something else, but also you take your meaning from something else. And now you might be like, well, Nick, I don't think that's true, actually, because I don't really believe in God like you do, but I believe, like, I have meaning in my life, right? Like, I, like there's stuff I care about and believe in in me. And, I'm, and look, that's not what I'm saying, okay? Listen, people have always— Rejected God as the one who gives the meaning and come up with meaning from whatever they wanted to find meaning in We've just called that idolatry for a couple thousand years Okay, it's essentially believing you're above the creator creation line and can self-define The problem is is that if you don't believe in the creator as creator and you as creature It's not that you can't ascribe a meaning to your life. It's that you can't get the meaning of your life, right? You won't really see what you really are. Your life won't have the right meaning which is that you are a dependent, subordinate creature who gets your meaning from the one who created you and the reason he created you. You're creative because he's a creator. You work because he worked. You can think because he thinks. Everything that you have that's good that you do is imaging and mirroring him because you're not just a creature, you're made in the divine image. And now listen, that's a little confusing, right? Because you're made in the image of the one that's above the creation line, and yet— You're below that line. You're part of the creation, yet bearing the image of the one that's above that line. And like, you can understand how that would be a little confusing because you might have pretensions of being above the line because you mirror the image of the one that's above the line. Which is why we have to understand really clearly in what way we're supposed to image God. And the way we're supposed to image God is within our character as creations, we act in accord with God's character And what Ephesians says is true righteousness and holiness. So we're creative, and we're meant to be creative in true, righteous, and holy ways. And we're never as big or out of nothing creative as God is, and yet we still bear his image. And in bearing his image, we're supposed to bear his character, or to put it in Jesus' words, we live according to his kingdom and his righteousness. And you see, once we, once we embrace those two things, that we live in those two things, we realize that the most fundamental question is, is our allegiance in the creative, creating one, who is also king and savior, who made us, or isn't it? And all of life is repentance and faith in relationship to that. In what ways aren't you believing that right this minute? And in what ways can you just admit that you aren't believing it and believe? Right? Because, you see, if our allegiance is in the creator, right, then the creator is going to define us and tell us what's most important. He has the right to do that. He'll be like, A, B, C, and D. This is what we're doing, right? And what that, what that does is, is that those things are bigger than anything that's in us because they don't come from us. They come from our creator. It's just, they're just categorically different than anything that's screaming inside your guts, Right? And so you can have this rushing river of passionate, compulsive emotion, and it's kind of like he puts these big boulders in it. Like, you, look, that water can rush as fast as it wants to rush. It needs to go around the rocks. Right? You walk through a river, it'll blow you right over, but you put a 15,000 pound boulder in the middle of a trout stream, and the water, the water decides to do something different. Okay? Same way you handle a toddler, right? And so, your convictions then come in and they begin to shape your life. And like you would know, if you had any stream, if you put enough rocks in it, in the right places, you can make it a canal and you can make that water go anywhere you want it to go. And that's what virtue does. Virtue doesn't eradicate your emotions. It begins to shape and cause them to flow with all their power where they're meant to flow. It's that you're not supposed to live— virtue doesn't make you live this completely stoic life. It allows you to live the most passionate life possible. But instead of your broken passions being infatuated with your compulsions and your infatuations, your passions are reshaped according to virtue and the true good so that lovingly they can be driven forth towards true beauty. Right? Because if you don't live by conviction, your two other options are you can live on the human strata and you can give your allegiance to yourself or other humans and that's always going to lead to co- lead to coercion. You're going to tyrannize others or other people are going to tyrannize you. Or you're going to put your trust in something that you think is going to fulfill your compulsion and you're just going to live by compulsion because you just need it, you just need it, you just need it. And the reason that that's really important is because 
You have to see that to want to be free of it enough. If you don't see how it's enslaving and, and how it's twisting you and how it's breaking and making you less of a person and how it's, it's like without even telling you it's enslaving you, it's controlling everything about you and how you're essentially losing the person you were created to be in it, you're never going to get mad enough to fight the enslaving force of the flesh. And you're never going to give yourself fully to the liberating power of the gospel. And so you'll find yourself not growing and you'll find your character really intermittent because there'll be some things you've believed Jesus about and he's forming you in those ways in really cool ways and you're like, wow, I feel like I'm really growing. And then some other thing you'll be like, why am I still doing that? And here's why you're still doing that. Because in that, this is what you believe. Right? Your flesh is like, I want this. I please, I, this is what I need to be happy. And so you turn to whatever that thing is and you want it and you want it really bad. And so you ask the idol, what is this going to cost me? And the idol goes, well, it's going to cost you this much. It's not that much. And you're like, I'll totally pay it. And so you pay it, and it goes, all right, great. But then here's what happens. This is what always happens with compulsion. The thing that we desire becomes harder to forego. We feel like we need it more and more, and the payoff is less and less. Now, what happens to the price of things? We want more and more, and the payoff for us less and less. That's why people give drugs away free to start, right? You get the compulsion going. They'll pay anything, right? You, you see, and you, you all know this is true because either you or people in your life, there's at least one person in your life like this, where they're a smart person, they're like from a pretty good family, and it's like every time something bad happens to them, they like go and do something more dumb, and they make things worse, and you're like, why do they do that? That's so, like, they're a sm it's not because they're dumb. It's because they're living by compulsion. And the compul—and their, their compulsion says, I want this. And so they look for whatever will give it to them at whatever cost they're willing to pay. And so they always turn to an idol because an idol will always overpromise and underdeliver. God always underpromises and overdelivers. Right? And they're like, I want this thing. They're like, okay. And you pay for it, and it always goes terribly. The craving is still there. They still want it, and they're willing to pay more. And so they pay more. And it just keeps spiraling down until their compulsion is so high, they don't feel like they can make it. Any others, they're like, I don't have it. That's when people start saying, I didn't have a choice. When people start saying that about stuff that's, that's like, of course you did. It's because compulsion is taking control of their personality. They're losing their very selves. And they really believe that they're not this volitional creature that just, just say no to stuff. There's no strength. Even if they know what the queen would say, the king isn't present. And so either you're going to live this way, or you live on the basis of allegiance to the one who, when he starts you off with convictions, he then sets you in right relationship to the other people and the rest of creation. And so in relationship to other people, instead of living in compulsion, which will all, or in coercion, which will always lead to tyranny, he teaches us how to live in love with each other, to use authority rightly and to act to there's a true good of others, right? And then in relationship to creation, he teaches us stewardship. He teaches us how to rule over the world while enjoying it, living in greater happiness and less compulsion. Because here's the thing about virtue. Just like compulsion makes it impossible for you to be happy, you can't forego something, but you have to have it. Virtue does the opposite. You become increasingly easier to please, right? So as where before, when you just wanted to like go and do something on your computer and you just don't want to listen to your spouse tell you about her day, because it's always just boring, because you're so bound up in the compulsion of like flitting things in front of your face instead of listening to a real human being, the thing, what virtue does is you're so bound up in the meaningfulness of the relationship and your care for the other person that they could say anything and you'd find it interesting. You see, people of virtue are so much happier because they can be pleased with anything. You see, virtue isn't just required for freedom. To a certain extent, it's required for happiness. And why wouldn't it be? Why wouldn't God create the eternal nature of things so that when we become like Christ, we receive everything from his hand? Why wouldn't he create a system that has no shortcuts and that you can't cheat? And yet, completely on grace. Think about this. 
the entire system in terms of making you into what you're meant to be, to escape damnation and its slavery, to become what you were created to be, is what makes you both free and happy. And it's inescapable every other way, right? Except for the fact that you're terrified to fail. Except the whole thing is given by gift. You can't fail to receive it. You'll always fail to achieve the moral perfection of it. You're never going to win. But the whole thing that God is testing in you is, are you willing to do something you're never going to win? You can't be a real person until you're ready to do something, not because of what you get out of it, but because of what it is. Things take their meaning by what they are. And if you can see something for what it is, you don't take pleasure in what it can do for you. You take pleasure in what it is. And everything's amazing. Everything that God created is beautiful. It's full of meaning and life and purpose and interrelationship. And if you'll see it as that, and if you'll interact with it as that, and if you'll participate with it like that, it's all beautiful. It's all pleasing. It's all freeing. But for the person that can't face anything with faith, like the Bible says, without faith, nothing is clean, as the prayer book of the Anglican Church says, without him, nothing is strong. Peter said to Jesus when Jesus said really hard things, God, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. And he just, he gives it. It's through faith. You have to have faith. You have to believe God wants to make you into something. You have to put your allegiance in the Creator. You have to get out of this feedback loop of the slavery of idolatry in the flesh, and you have to give yourself to the Creator who puts you in right relationship with all things in love and stewardship, and be free in it. And you have, that requires faith. But it's not just through faith. It is by grace. The power that makes it happen isn't the power of your faith. It's the power of his spirit, the power of his graciousness, the power of his love, the power of his kindness that he wants to reveal to you ever increasingly throughout the entire, all the ages of eternity that is in Christ you are already seated with God in heaven, it says in that passage. All that matters now is that by grace, through faith, you are participating in God in becoming his workmanship. And to the extent to which you become his workmanship, you will be pleased in doing his work and free in it. Father, we pray that as we come to communion now and think about this marker of allegiance to you, that while we were sinners, while we hated you, while we rebelled against you, while our allegiance was in the dirt of the world, you gave your allegiance to us and saved us. And as we do this now, we pray, Lord, that you will use it to reframe our allegiance to you as the creator and that you will forge in us a virtuous freedom.